If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be some scattered throughout the, the room. Uh, if you don't have one anywhere close to you, flag somebody down, they'll pass one to you. And if you don't own one, we'd love for you to go ahead and take that copy with you. And we'd love to talk to you later about what you, what you read there. We're back in Colossians, coming around the middle of our time in this letter. And this morning, I think the place to start is a question. Would you consider yourself a satisfied, fulfilled person? Would you consider yourself to be a satisfied, fulfilled person? Are you getting what you want out of life? Does the course that you think you've got set for yourself seem to be delivering for you? And chances are that no matter how you would answer that question now, there are at least times that you can remember in your experience where you haven't felt satisfied. Perhaps you felt empty or, or purposeless, some, some, a lack of mooring. It's a common experience, especially for people, for some reason, especially for people in, in our generation, in, in our culture, where there's, there's opulence all around, where we seemingly could do whatever we wanted to. It seems like especially we are susceptible to feelings of, of emptiness. Some of our, I think one of our most troubling tendencies is to assume that if we could just change our circumstances, then whatever lack we're perceiving in our life, whatever sense of meaninglessness or emptiness would be fulfilled. If we could just get the thing that we don't have now, we'd be all right. There's a long history of people trying that and failing. I think some of the best literature, especially in the last hundred years, communicates that very truth to us. I, I think one of the most interesting books that I read, we probably all had to read it at some point in high school or college, was The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's written in the 1920s. This was a time, I mean, they're called the Roaring Twenties for a reason. This, is, this was a time when, when optimism was at a peak in many respects. It was a time when there was plenty of money to go around and people were making really, really lavish use of it. And this story captures that era captures the the striving of this one guy who didn't have a high birth, this guy who was sort of born into a lower class, and he, he spends his life trying to attain this upper class that he sees sort of from a distance through through some networks of friendships, and he, he thinks if he could just attain their respect and a lifestyle among those people that, he, that everything would be great, that he might actually even been able to win the hand of this woman that he loved. The story tells it uh, in, in great vivid detail of all the things that he did to make money, of the ways that he used money to try to basically buy himself friends. And the story has, I'm not going to, no spoiler alert here, but it's not a happy ending. The guy ends his life staring into the distance, recognizing that the thing he wants most is something he can't provide for himself. He, it's, it's, it captures an era in which people thought money would deliver, and it didn't. You could go with just about any era and find some sort of parallel in the in the best literature that we have and i think it just it just resonates with our experience the problem that that gatsby understood the problem many of us have probably understood at some point or another is that circumstances aren't the issue the issue is that something at the center of our life whatever it is that's driving what we're after and that colors our perspective on the things that we see and experience that thing whatever that might be is empty. It can't carry the weight. Christianity, of course, is one option 
for, for a centerpiece to your life. It's an explanation of the world and where it came from and where it's going and, and, and what matters and what we should be doing and what is the solution to the problems that we realize. That's what Christianity tries to be. It's a, it is an explanation of the world that we experience, a particular take on what should be driving us and how we should be viewing things. And Paul, in, in Colossians, has been dealing with the details of this Christian option, this path. That, and he gets to the heart of the matter in the passage we're looking at this morning, Colossians chapter 2. In this second chapter, which some have said is really the heart of the whole letter that gets to what Paul is really trying to accomplish, he sets up for us a choice, a choice between Jesus where Jesus is not just the beginning, he's not just the starting point of our life or the inspiration for our life, he's, he's the beginning and he's the end, where Jesus is everything. That's choice A. Choice B is a choice he summarizes as nothing more than empty deceit. Paul sets up a choice between Jesus as beginning and end, as one to whom nothing can be added, and empty deceit. And then he mounts a case for why he believes Jesus delivers where nothing else can. This morning, what we want to do is to begin to get into Paul's case for Christ as the be-all and end-all of life. Before we get too far, would you mind standing with me? If you found that now in Colossians chapter 2, would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read from Colossians 2 beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So Paul starts with a choice. Jesus or everything else. And that everything else amounts to nothing more than empty deceit. That's Paul's case. He sets up in these first three verses, verse 6, 7, and 8, a contrast between what he's been doing already throughout everything we've seen so far in Colossians, and that is to set Jesus up as something that needs no embellishment. He needs no, 
no additions, no sort of supplementation. He's enough. That's everything in chapter 1. There's Jesus over here and whatever else the Colossians or, or we may be tempted to pursue. You might say that verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 are the, the purpose or the thesis statement of the whole letter. Everything else has been building up to this. Everything from here will try to develop this claim. And his claim is simple. As you received Christ, the Christ I've been talking about in, these, in this first part of the letter, the, the Christ who's been exalted through this amazing hymn in, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, this Christ, just as you received him from me and from those who have taught you, so walk in him. There's the punchline. This Christ you've received is now the one in whom you live your entire life. Everything said so far and everything said later builds towards convincing people to live in Jesus. If you look at and work out your life through the lens of Jesus and what he's done, Paul's point is you're not going to be disappointed. He will deliver. His metaphors, I think, make this point for us really well. Verse 7 explains what it is to walk in him and, and why you should try to live your entire life from the perspective of what Jesus has done for you. He says you're rooted in him and you're being built up in him. Mixed metaphors, they're not exactly the same, but they communicate pretty powerfully. The root system of a tree, of course, is what grounds it. It's what gives it its life. It's there before the tree can grow. It supplies what that tree needs to grow. It's the foundation. That's what the gospel is for Christians. It's the bedrock, that firm foundation we sung about. But then he switches his metaphor and says you're being built up in him. It's, it's not just a foundation that then you build on top of with good works or worship of spirits or whatever the Colossians were into at the time with whatever we might add to him. It's that the foundation is just the beginning. You're also, everything that goes into the building ultimately is in Jesus. Even the way that Paul, even the verbs Paul chooses and the particular tenses he uses here communicate this truth. When he talks about us being rooted, he uses a kind of verb we really don't have in English that that really specifically captures the fact that it's once and for all. It's this single action. It happened. It's done. And it never has to be done again. You're rooted in Jesus and what he's accomplished. Then when he talks about being built up with him, the, the fact that not just the foundation, but also the walls and the, the, the studs and the sheetrock and the roof, all of it is in Jesus and the gospel. He uses a verb that's ongoing. It's like it's, it's something that's constantly happening for you throughout the rest of your life if, if you remain in him. That's what it is to walk in him. He's the beginning. He's the end. Same abstract to you? I, I can understand if it does. In some ways, I think the rest of our life will be trying to figure out an answer to the question of what it means for us to walk in Jesus. What does it mean? What does it look like for the gospel to guide us as we grow and explain to us how we live as Christians? There's help on the way. The remaining parts of the letter get very nitty-gritty about what it looks like to live from the perspective of what Jesus has done. So far, we're just talking about Paul's choice that he puts before us between living in Jesus and living for or in anything else. But really, you could boil down this concept of, of what it is to live out the gospel as the, the engine of your growth as a Christian by posing to yourself a question of whatever priority you might have, whatever it is that you're out, af, out after in your life, ask yourself, what, what does Jesus have to do with this? with this value, with this pursuit, with this thing that, 
that is, is guiding my behavior, with this thing that my life is trying to accomplish. Ask yourself, as you analyze your life, as you analyze any specific situation you may find yourself in, what does Jesus have to do with this? Is he connected to this at all? We're going to get a lot more specific as we go forward. But Paul, for now, hopefully Paul's claim is clear enough. Jesus is not something you move on from. He's everything. Who he is and what he does is our root system, and it's the building as well. Now, the reason that he makes this point about the sufficiency of Jesus and, and the reason he's continuing to make it almost to redundancy by this point in the letter. We've been saying this over and over again because almost every section, every major paragraph tends to build on this idea. The reason that he's going there and, and that he's laboring over this point is that he knows this is not the only way to view life. He knows there's other options. In fact, he knows that there are other options that sound good, that are plausible. Verse 4 that we covered last week, Paul warned them that he says all of this about Christ, about Jesus being the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He tells them this because he knows that there's a, there's a risk that they're going to be tempted by plausible arguments. In verse 8, he summarizes basically what those plausible arguments amount to. If there's something that's being offered to you that doesn't depend on Jesus, it's nothing but empty deceit. He talks about it as something that you can be taken captive by. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the way that we look at the world, the sort of lens that we put on to, to view anything that we experience, what we might call a world view, that's something that's hard to break free from. It's something that, that it's hard to break free from because it's like trying to see your eyes. It's like trying to see the thing that you're using to see. It's, it's something that's just almost not capturable. It's something that's subconscious and lies beneath the surface. He's saying that this is that if you go with something besides Jesus, you're 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 really in danger of being captured because that's a thing that you won't be able to see and take out and analyze. Be careful. He's got something specific in mind. He was tempt that was tempting his readers, especially uh, something that spelled out best in the next section that we'll come to next week. Apparently, had something to do with with legalistic self denial, sort of denying the body, an asceticism that denied the body as a way of trying to purge out sin as something that's necessary to salvation. Apparently it also had something to do with, with seeking out spirits, some sort of spiritual intermediaries, as if Jesus was one of many that you could use to try to get to God, to understand life and manipulate it in, in your favor. But it's not a stretch to say that his summary of what these alternatives to Jesus amount to applies to any alternative we might pose as well. Even if we're not tempted to whatever it was specifically tempting these Colossians, we have still got our own things that we use to supplement what Jesus offers. Ultimately, he says these things in verse 8, what could take us captive is philosophy and even more specifically, it's empty deceit. And whatever that emptiness may come from, the, the, the bottom line, whatever the specific options they were tempted by and we might be tempted by, the bottom line that makes them empty, according to Paul, is that they're according to human traditions. They're not according to Christ. They're empty deceit because they're according to human traditions. They're not according to Christ. Paul understands the problems that we have as problems that are too big for any sort of human solution. They're problems that require the divine to enter into this world and change us for the better. And any, any 
solution that's offered that is built on just human ideas, on human solutions, things that are in our power, Paul labels as empty deceit. They're empty because they have no need for Jesus. I think the point of the point of his metaphor of, the, of, the, of labeling them empty deceit should be pretty clear. Easy enough to understand, I guess. It's something that doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver what it promises. It's empty and it's deceitful because it portrays itself as offering something that when you clamp down on it isn't actually there. It has the appearance of something that's full but isn't. It's like a blowfish that expands its body but it's full of air. Deceives. It's white bread. It's not whole grain. And these are words that this is a this is a portrait that Paul uses with a long lineage, empty, hollow, wind, withered grass. These are the images that the Old Testament regularly uses to describe any system of life that isn't related directly to God. It's the description of idolatry that we get in Isaiah 41, where he describes their metal images as nothing but a delusion. Their, their metal images are empty wind. It's what, I, it's what Jeremiah is getting at in Jeremiah 2, where he says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the Lord speaking here, the fountain of living waters, and they've traded me in for broken cisterns that can't even hold anything. They look like cisterns that work, but they're empty because they're cracked, and the water is just going to flow right out. They can't satisfy but perhaps the most famous example, which, which takes this concept of emptiness or vanity out of the realm of obvious idols, of things we might build in place of God, and into the realm of real life, is Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher we know to be Solomon, he talks about, especially in chapter 2, one of my favorite paragraphs in all of Scripture, the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about all the things that he has been after in his life. Solomon, this guy obtained them all, right? This was a guy who had everything. He talks about he talks about the fact that he as king experienced unlimited power, unlimited pleasure. He sought after pleasure and he got it and it didn't last. He found laughter to be something that was too fleeting to satisfy. He had sex all that he wanted. He had he lists the concubines and the number that he had. He had he had everything that, that typically drives human ambition. He had obtained it and reached the top of it. And his summary of all that he had was that it was nothing but vanity and striving after wind. All is vanity and striving after wind. Ultimately, what we read in the prophets and in Ecclesiastes and what we read here in Paul, this description of life is as full of emptiness. It's something that just can't satisfy. It's something that we learn from experience the hard way, don't we? So let's say that you take really good care of your body and you're very proud of it. And it creates opportunities for you in a culture like this one that, that champions body image. Let's say it satisfies you even for a while. Eventually, you're going to be in your 60s or 70s. If you measure fulfillment by what you experience now and not by what you'll have 40, 50 years from now even, then you're not measuring fulfillment in a, re, in, a, in a reasonable, realistic manner. It's empty because it can't last. If you want any clearer 
explanation of this fact, any clear illustration of it, just look at Joan Rivers' face. She's trying to make it last, right? But she can't. Here's a life lived for a particular image of herself that's not, that she can't hold on to. It's empty. Take money. You think you enjoy financial security? There's some enjoyment to be had from it, from, from not having to worry, not having to live from paycheck to paycheck, from being able to buy things that you like or take trips. There's, there's some security and some pleasure to be had. So let's say you stockpile wealth and you get to a place that you feel like you can actually rest, and then 2008 happens, and it cuts everything you have in half. In one year, the Dow Jones goes back 10 years to its levels in 1998, wiping out a generation's attempts to retire anytime soon. You think that's going to provide security? It's a number on a computer screen somewhere. And even if you did enjoy it, till you, even, if, even if 2008 never happened to you, and you lived on the wealth that you had stockpiled, and you lived in comfort and security, and you lived there till the end of your life, your, the, your, your life ultimately is a breath. You're here 80 years, and then you're gone, and you can't take it with you. That's empty in Paul's view because it doesn't outlive the grave. Let's say it's pleasure. I think maybe one of the most reasonable ways to, to live life you're not going to live it in Jesus, I think, is just to try to maximize your pleasure wherever you can. Take pleasure, take pain, do some sort of opportunity cost analysis, and you do whatever is going to maximize that pleasure. I think that makes sense. I think that's why the, the old uh, saying is that if there's no resurrection, then we eat and we drink and we're merry because tomorrow we're going to die. You try to live it up while you can. But if, that's, if, if you're a hedonistic person, someone who's living only for the experience of pleasure, that works pretty well when you're in your 20s, especially if you're well-supplied with money from somebody else. But what happens when you get cancer? What does your hedonism do for you then? What does your hedonism do when, when all of a sudden you wake up one day and your life has an expiration date that's staring you in the face? It doesn't do much. It's empty. Because it looks good in one context. It's plausible for a while. There's fun to be had. It's deceptive. It can take you captive, but ultimately it's empty. It's nothing more than empty deceit. It's a blowfish. The uniqueness of Christianity is that it offers an unshakable root system. It offers a foundation and a solid structure that isn't tied to shifting sands of life. In the words, or the, in the picture that Jesus paints for us, it's, it's a building on a rock and not on the sand. Isn't that vivid story that he told about the guy who builds his house on the sand versus the guy who builds his house on the rock? The guy who builds on the rock, he can handle the storm when it comes. He's got a solid foundation. But the guy who builds on the sand, well, when we've seen enough hurricanes and the damage that's created to know what happens to that guy, it just washes right out from under him. Christianity is unique because it offers a solution that it cannot be erased by death. It's built on rock, not on sand. So Paul's case is choose to live in Jesus. We'll talk more about what that looks like in weeks to come. But the choice, hopefully, is clear enough. There's Jesus or there's everything else. It's empty deceit. It's shifting sand. Now, it seems to me that the most important question we can ask at this point is why should we trust that Jesus can offer us something no one else can? If we've experienced what it is to be disappointed 
by something that we thought was going to deliver, that we finally lash hold to, and that didn't supply us with the happiness or fulfillment we were looking for, then we ought to be a little bit suspicious about anything that's offering to supply what we need. The real question is, why will Jesus satisfy where other things don't? And that's the question that Paul takes up in the remainder of the paragraph. The reason we can trust in Christ to deliver where other things won't is that Jesus offers something specific that we need, something that can't change, that won't be affected by the passage of time, something that won't wither and die, something that we can't screw up finally. That's what we need, something that is permanent and fixed. We need a place to live in the world, a center, a source of grounding that can handle life's ups and downs, that can, that can handle the pain and the sorrow that are coming our way, the weakness and the frailty that comes so natural to us, that can handle all of that and still not be shaken. That's what we need. What makes Christ worth building on is that he represents something that you can't lose. He represents a transformation that comes by a union with him. And he represents a complete pardon that's not tied to anything we've done and therefore is not tied to anything that we can spoil. Jesus offers a transformation by union with him. And he offers a complete pardon that isn't due to anything we've done and therefore isn't spoilable by anything we could do. That's Paul's point in verses 9 through 15. You notice that verse 9 begins with a key transitional word, for... He's just set up a choice for us. Live in Jesus just as you've received him. Everything else is empty deceit. Now he tells you why. Here's why you should live in Jesus and be content with him and not supplement him with anything else. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. That's union with Christ. And for though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 13 and 14, he's forgiven you all of them. He's canceled that record. He's set it aside and nailed it to the cross. Those are the two things that Paul's positive case for Christ boils down to. And that's where we want to spend the rest of our time. I think he starts here positively. Instead of going after the emptiness, he could have set up this choice and then hammered home on emptiness and explained why the other things being offered to the Colossians weren't going to deliver what they promised. But instead, he goes to why Jesus will deliver. And this is a, probably a worn-out illustration. I don't know. I've heard it in several different contexts. It may even be apocryphal. But they, they say, I don't know who they is, but they say that when you're training someone about how to recognize counterfeit money, I guess this would be the FBI. I don't know who handles that. You're training someone to recognize counterfeit money. You don't train them to see the counterfeit. You don't give them counterfeit bills. You give them the real thing, and you make them study it really, really carefully so that they know every little mark on it. And then when they compare the real thing to something that isn't real, it'll be glaring to them because they've mastered the positive. They've mastered what is true and real. They can recognize what isn't. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He starts with what's true, with what's real and unshakable, with what you have to have if you don't want to be deceived. Every religion in the world has an ethical code of conduct. Every single one of them is going to tell you, here's what you ought to do if you want to have a good life. This is what you have to do to be happy, to be fulfilled. The difference is that Christianity promises not just a code of conduct. Christianity promises a transformation that makes you able to obey. 
and it promises you a solution for the fact that you haven't obeyed. What separates Christianity from what every other religion is calling for in you, when it sets up a code of conduct, it provides you a transformation of yourself that makes you able to obey, to please God. And it offers you a solution for the fact that you have already failed to obey. Those are the two things that we want to drive down on this morning. Jesus offers transformation, and Jesus offers satisfaction for what's already been done. So transformation. This is Paul's case in verses 9 through 12 especially. When he goes to a four, to what it is that means Jesus will deliver where other things won't, he says that he goes to the deity of Christ, to the fact that in Jesus the full power of God rests. He is fully divine. And to the fact that this fully divine person now dwells in you. That's a mystery that we will spend a lifetime trying to unpack and we will not be successful fully. The how, how it is that Jesus inhabits us and communicates something of his divine nature to us to change us is, is something that, that will always remain mysterious. But Paul throws a couple of images at us to help tease out this notion. He tells us we've been filled in him who's the head of all rule of authority. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says... In him, this is the union I'm talking about, this union with Christ. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So his first image is circumcision. I think initially we go to the Jewish practice and we think there must be some sort of parallel there. There may be, but I think that mostly what's being communicated here, what one commentator in particular argues is that Really, it's a reference to just stripping away the old self. It's a circumcision of all the old self that has held you down, all the old self that corrupts who you are. One of the best reasons for taking it that way is the fact that somehow we're benefited by the circumcision of Christ. That's what verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11 says. In him you're circumcised by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And if it's something that Christ's can do for us and communicate to us, then it makes more sense to take it as Christ's death, a sort of shedding of his body. By his shedding of his body, our body, our corruption, our evil flesh is stripped away. We share with him in that. Verse 12 helps us, I think, confirm that that's what he's after. Now he shifts from circumcision to to baptism, and you're buried with him, he says, in baptism. Again, union with Christ. With him, you get buried Baptism is what does that for you. You're also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Just as Jesus triumphed over the grave because you're united to him, you too will triumph over the grave. That's his point. The point is that whatever is true of Jesus is is true of us because of this mysterious union with him. And what he's communicating is that there's something that happens to you because you're united to Christ. It's not just some status that you get on a piece of paper. There is a legal exchange that we, that we understand that happens with the cross. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But there's more to it than that. There's actually something that changes you. There's a transformation that happens because you're joined to him. And what he experiences, you also experience it. And we look forward to the time when that will be full and complete, to when we'll have resurrected bodies and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But it seems to me clear enough that in this passage... He's talking about a change that even begins to happen for you now. 
that because you're joined to Christ, you live in a way that you didn't before you joined yourself to Christ or, or Christ to you. This isn't just about future hope. It's about present transformation. So what we have here in the fact that Jesus offers transformation to us is a contrast to the empty forces that can't produce change. These other solutions, ones we're going to really get into in the the weeks to come, they promise elevation of your life if you just follow these rules, if you just obey in this particular way. But they have no power in them to do it for you, to change you so that you're now able to do things you weren't able to do before. They don't offer you that. That's not offered anywhere but in Jesus. But there's also another contrast here, and and maybe even more a prominent contrast for us. It's not just that other things that promise change and can't deliver, Jesus, in in place of those, does deliver. It's it's also that that Jesus actually can change you. I think maybe we probably struggle more with believing that it's possible to change. We tend to see everything in such a materialistic way as sort of fixed and permanent, that we're just bodies that are affected by material forces outside of our control. We're controlled by our biology and by the cultural forces that have shaped us into who we are, and we can't break free of that. It's determined for us already. Change is impossible. It's all, it all boils down to just body and brain chemistry, and, and what power do we have over that finally? This, this is a message of hope that doesn't get thwarted by brain chemistry. This is a message of transformation that is real and present and experienced because Jesus has done it for you, because you're united to something he has already accomplished. Ultimately, probably the most important phrase, the most determinative phrase in this paragraph on transformation is, is in verse 11 where Paul says, this circumcision, this shedding of the old so that you put on the new, it's not done by human hands. This is a circumcision that's supernatural. And because it's wrought for you by God, it's something that won't change. He doesn't make mistakes. When he changes you, you are changed indeed. Now, maybe you can't see this change. I'd say one of the biggest challenges for us to believe that this kind of transformation is possible is our own experience. And the fact that a lot of times we just don't see it. Maybe we don't see it in ourselves. Maybe we struggle to see it in other people who are claiming that they have been changed by the gospel, but we see how they live, and it just puts a sour taste in our mouth for all that Christianity is. Well, that's a big problem. I can admit that. I think all of us would have to. But I don't want us to fall into the trap of assuming Paul is saying something here that he isn't. He's not talking about a change that's immediate, as if union with Christ is all at once in the same way that our gospel standing before God is all at once. Remember, Jesus is everything. He's that once-for-all root system. That only happens one time, and we're secure in him forever because of that. But he's also the one in whom we are built up over time. It's a process of growing and changing. And we know that it'll happen because we already have that new set of DNA in us that's communicated through union with Jesus. But that's, that's a process that takes a lifetime and will never be complete until the new heavens and the new earth. Don't assume, because you still see the power of sin in yourself and others, that this kind of transformation isn't possible. Take the long view. Think back to where you were years ago in your walk with Christ if you've been a Christian for a while. Think of someone that you know who you knew before they were converted and you know now, and you can see a long pattern of growth in them. Take a long view on transformation, and I think you'll be encouraged by what you see. 
That's transformation. Jesus is not empty. He'll deliver because he offers a transformation that you can't get elsewhere. But there's more to it than that. Paul also argues that you should trust in Jesus in place of anything else because Jesus offers you satisfaction. Jesus offers you satisfaction. There's a play on that word to be made when we think of satisfaction and, and we think in terms of things we've already been talking about this morning, about feeling satisfied. And we are talking about that, and I'm going there at the end. But, but really, there's a deeper satisfaction that's the ground here, and that's the satisfaction of what is necessary. There is something necessary because of our sin that Jesus satisfies. He takes care of. Ultimately, the verses on forgiveness, verses 13, 14, and 15, explain what it is to have sin satisfied for. And, and the reason that that matters, the reason that it matters is that it's not enough just to be changed. The transformation itself is incomplete if what has already happened before we're transformed isn't, uh, isn't accounted for. Consider maybe a, a, a compulsive serial killer who, who kills because they have something that's really wrong with them that causes them to do it, right? It's something that they can't, that they're, 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 they're psychological, they're pathological. And then they're transformed, right? And they don't want to kill anymore. That's amazing. There's a transformation that's happened there. But if there's already a high body count, you're not just going to pat them on the back and say, we're glad that you're transformed. Go and live your transformed life. Something's got to account for what's already been done. Paul's arguing that Jesus accounts for both ends of that spectrum. He transforms you going forward, but he also accounts for what's already been done, the sins that have been committed and, and have to be answered for. So these images of union with Christ, this circumcision and death and baptism and resurrection, these images make sense only and are only possible because of where Paul goes in verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, "...and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." God made alive. That summarizes what he said in the verses that just precede. This union with Christ that brings life where there was only death. Then he says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In other words, the way you were made alive is that God has forgiven us all our trespasses. And the way that he's forgiven us our trespasses, the way that you can understand that comes in 14 and 15. Here's how. Two images. First, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Verse 14. How has he forgiven us? If he's made us alive because he's forgiven us, how has he forgiven us? Well, it involves canceling debt. The, the word he uses here is a, is a little bit obscure, so we don't have a lot of, of other uses to back it up, back up exactly what it means, but the, the closest it seems we can come is that it, it refers to something almost like an IOU, this certificate of debt, this record of debt. It's like a, I mean, maybe, maybe the best example we have in our experience is like a credit card bill. And this is a list of things that we have agreed to pay. We sign our signature on the, on the receipt saying, yes, we're good for that. And then we get, our, we get our, our bill, and it's filled with these charges that we are obligated to pay. It's an IOU. Of course, because it also has a legal status to it, it's, it's almost like a list of charges that we have already been wrong for, and we have to make satisfaction for. And we can make that jump, I think, easily enough. Because essentially what you're doing when you live as a citizen of a place like Nashville or, or the U.S., you are implicitly agreeing that you owe obedience, right? It's a debt. It's almost like a credit card. 
you know these things, you are, you are living here and enjoying the privileges of it, and what you owe in return, your payment that is, that is necessary for you to make, is that you are going to obey this list of laws. If you, if you don't obey one of those lists of laws, you now are in debt even further. There's now some default on what you have owed. By virtue of your citizenship in the world, as it's created by God, we owe complete obedience to his law. And breaking it means we get written up. It means we now have a debt to pay. I don't know if you guys followed the Casey Anthony trial. I didn't. But I happened to be listening to the radio the day that the, uh, that the verdict got read. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't watch a lot of courtroom dramas. I don't really understand. I don't have like a good vivid sense of what the process looks like. But one of the things that really stood out to me is when they handed these charges over. The judge looks at them, right? The jury returns them. The judge looks at them. Uh, tries not to make a face, hands them off to the, I guess, is it the, is it the bailiff or uh, whoever? I don't know who it is that reads, that reads those things. I'm looking at my lawyer friends out there looking for some help. But it's the clerk. The clerk gets, the, uh, gets this list of charges, and she stands at this mic, and she reads them. And it's all very formal and particular. And there's a very precise way that everything is read. And it's not like, we, I mean, this case has been going on for months, and everybody knows what's, what the deal is, but she still reads every charge one by one and what the verdict is for every one. This is a list of charges. This is, what Paul is, this is the image Paul is trying to, to conjure up in our minds. It's as if there's this list that includes everything in our life that we have owed to God and failed to deliver. It's held over our heads, and what we deserve for it is death. But Paul, in his vivid way, says Jesus has just plainly canceled it. It stood against us at one time. Its legal demands were real and concrete. Our head was on the line, quite literally. But Jesus canceled it. It's like it was written on a whiteboard and he erased it. It's like it was written on Microsoft Word and he hit delete. It's like it was on parchment and he just ripped it to shreds or maybe even just burned it so that there's nothing else there. He canceled it. And that's everything. That's everything you have done or could do. It's accomplished. I think, though, my favorite image is his next one. His next image, it's almost like he's just piling up things, ways of trying to get a hold on what, what he's talking about. He says, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It's legal demands. Now he says... This he set aside, the same record of debt, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. He's just, there's nothing literal here, right? He's not, it's, it's not like because he says it's canceled over here or ripped or wiped clean and now it can't be nailed. It's two different ways of understanding the same exact thing. And the power of this image is that it comes explicitly from a practice in, in, the, in the Roman world. We, we get a trace of this in the account of Jesus' crucifixion. What they would do is they would take the charge for which that person is dying and they would nail it above their heads on the cross. So Jesus' sign said, King of the Jews. Right? It's that amazing irony that he was, in fact, the King of the Jews. And that is, in fact, why he was dying, even how he was becoming king. He becomes king through his death. But the point was to, to mock him and to explain that he's dying for treason because he claimed to be king where only Caesar is king. Paul's pulling from that same practice, that same image, and he says he, ta- he has taken everything we have ever done or ever could do, and he has taken a hammer and a nail, and he has nailed it above Jesus' bleeding head on the cross. Every single thing is there. That's everything that you have done. 
It's everything that you've left undone. It's everything that you will do, things that you can't even yet imagine that you're even capable of, that you are going to do, and you're going to hate your, you're going to be tempted to hate yourself for it. It's all already there. Jesus knows, and he accomplished it perfectly. He's nailed it all to the cross, and it's completely paid for. So the reason that Christ satisfies, the reason he satisfies where everything else is nothing but emptiness, is that he provides something that's final, that's complete, that's already accomplished and accomplished for you. And if it's accomplished by someone else for you, there is nothing that you can do and there is nothing that life can throw at you that will change it in any way, shape, or form. It's done. Jesus transforms and he fully and completely satisfied. When, we look at, when God looks at us, what he sees is his perfect son and the perfect life that he lived, and the perfect death that he died. And that's done. It's accomplished. It is unshakable. It's finished. When Paul says we're to live in Jesus, to walk in him now as we received him, he means there's a centerpiece of life that you won't outgrow, that you can't lose, that death will not steal away from you. It's a fullness that's available to us because it's fully supplied by Jesus. It's what Jesus had in mind, I think, when he described himself as the bread of life. It's what he had in mind, I think, when he described himself as the the spring of living water, that when you've drunk from it, you will never thirst again. Other water may as well be empty. It satisfies for a while, but you get thirsty again. Jesus says you come to him to drink, and you're never going to thirst again. So to return full circle, have you looked at your life lately? And have you seen maybe that that you have everything that you need and yet you still can't be happy? That you have a great place to live? You have a job that you like? You have a spouse or children that you like? You, have, you got into the program that you wanted to? Maybe even your work is going well? That you have pretty much everything that, that any reasonable person could expect, but you still can't be happy? By the same token, maybe, maybe you do have serious reason not to be. Your lives are objectively difficult. There's no reason. The encouragement to have here and the challenge to those of you who, the encouragement wherever you are, if you are, if you seem to have everything and can't be happy, if you objectively don't have some things that you think you need to be happy, the encouragement to you is that those things were never, ever going to fulfill you anyway. You can get the job you're looking for. You can get the spouse you think is going to meet all of your needs. You can get the financial breathing room that you think is going to make you more peaceful can get the house that you really, really want, ultimately you're not going to be any more content. Those things aren't Jesus. They're according to human traditions, not according to Christ. They're nothing but empty deceit. In Christ, there is the bread of life. The promise is that if you drink from him and stay true, if you drink from him and be rooted in him and also built up in him and never supplement him with anything, that he'll deliver where nothing else can. That's the call of the gospel. Will you, will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for living water. Thank you for the satisfaction to our souls that comes only in the satisfaction that is won for us, accomplished perfectly for us through your Son. Now what we pray is that you would help us to walk in him. Would you help us to see how to live the gospel? 
how to see everything that we experience from the perspective of what Christ has already accomplished. That's so abstract to us so often, and the things of this world so vivid and so distracting. So we ask for the power of your gospel to do its work in us, to give us eyes that see, to give us hearts full of joy and humility to respond. And we pray this confidently in the name of your son, Jesus.